Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're in our last week in the Gospel of John chapter 4, well, at least regarding the Samaritan woman at the well. And I hope you have enjoyed her story as much as I have. It's actually a very simple story, very plain, not much action per se, a lot of conversation. But in her story is so much of what it means to follow Jesus. And really in a blink of an eye, she goes from someone who totally doesn't get it at all to suddenly saying, I need to tell everyone about who this Jesus is. That's sort of startling because we don't tend to see that type of conversion. And it's not a conversion of a person who dramatically changes in every way, but it's more of her heart. And then her response that just flows out of that heart. I think another part of this story that just strikes at me, and it was while we were singing the song, All Sufficient Merit Is, I just imagined her singing that song to say that all that I have owed has been born and the debt has been paid by somebody else. When you imagine that, you can see why for her, as she goes to tell other people, it's not something she has to conjure up for herself, bravery, courage, or maybe try to think of the right words to say. It just flows from her heart. And that's what we looked at for these past two weeks. In this third week, we'll look one more time at this concept of, I get the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and therefore, I want to go and tell others. Gospel mission. Mission is a word that we don't like to hear so often because we think of it as meant for only a select few or for those who are trained or for those who are more moral than I am or more, more uh, charismatic, articulate. But I think you can see from this story that it has nothing to do with articulation or morality doesn't even have to do with how long you've known Jesus. It's just simply you believe and therefore you tell others. And so what I'd like to do is to look at four words that gospel mission is from this passage and four words that gospel mission is not. First, gospel mission is attractive, not attractional. Gospel mission is attractive, not attractional. I have no idea what this woman was actually like. I don't know what she looked like. I don't know what her personality type was. I don't know if she had any education at all. We only know one thing. We know that her experience with men was not the best. We know that she wanted to hide. She wanted to avoid people. But when she met Christ, she was transformed, so much so so that she left her water jar behind. And then verses 28 and 29 says, And she went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man 
who told me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? That response is not just hers, it's one that we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus' disciples had the same response. Andrew tells his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. John 1.42 records that Andrew brought Jesus, uh, Peter to Jesus. In John 1.45, we're told Philip found Nathanael, his friend, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Philip, in John 1.46, says to Nathanael the same idea that this Samaritan woman has to her village, come and see. So there's this invitation. It's, I found, and then I want someone else to come and see. And what they're pointing towards is the attraction to Jesus, that they're attracted to him. It's not an event. You know, they're not bringing uh, their selective people to a revival meeting or some gathering where some speaker is going to come. It's, this is who I am, and you know who I am, and I believe in Jesus, and he is, as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory, Christ in me. So come and see Christ in me. He's my hope. And so therefore, that's the invitation. The common thread in the story of the spread of the gospel in the New Testament is that people are not drawn to events. They're always drawn to the person of Christ. They're not drawn to a strategy or a program. No, they're not even drawn to a friendship or a community, small groups, music. They're always drawn to the attractive Savior, Jesus Christ. And as they meet Jesus, they're transformed by who he is and what he has done for them. And then they go and tell anyone that they encounter about this Jesus. It's exactly counterintuitive because there is this temptation to think you're not, you shouldn't be drawn to the person of Jesus. You should be drawn to what Jesus gives to you, the gifts. Uh, the attractional nature of who Jesus is or the events that surround him. And so therefore, it is a temptation for a church or a ministry or a missions organization to always try to think from the perspective of how can we create an event that will actually draw people to the event? And the hope is that maybe they will somehow along the way turn to Jesus. And so we try to outglitz the world and say, if the world uses these means, we can, we can do better than that. You know, the reality is that the church will never outglitz Hollywood or Disney. We can't out-entertain Disney, no matter how hard we try. And you know what? We're trying. <laughs> We're not trying, though, to draw them because of a Golden Gate Bridge or a Sydney Opera House that changes its colors every 30 seconds. No matter how hard Kevin Cho designed that Opera House, which he did it in like four stages, a small little model, a bigger model, a bigger model, and then, ta-da. Eventually, Kevin's not even here, but thank you on behalf of Kevin. The goal is like he wants to make 
those colors go to the beat of the song when we play. And he's working on coding that. So now here's the thing, is that if it's about this or the Golden Gate Bridge or signs or like whatever we do, we still can't outdo Disney, no matter how hard we try. So here's the, the, this tension. The tension is, do we do anything? Is it bad? Is it good? I'll talk about that. But the end is never the means. These are means, but they are never the end. And it is a danger once we confuse the two. When we were in Burundi, we went to this church, and above it, above the preacher, right literally above, there was a little mini disco ball. And what was interesting is that George Sneeman, he came up to preach, he was speaking, and me, Thomas, and Fuji were down below. And it's a rural church. It's in Africa, and it has almost nothing. But it did have a disco ball. Oh, and by the way, it had really loud music. If you think our music is loud, we, we came back hearing impaired because of it. I mean, it was loud. But that disco ball was running the whole time he was preaching, so there were lights on his, on his head. That he just can't help but just stare at the lights on his head just flickering back and forth. And the reason why that church did that is because they looked at, say, Hillsong or, you know, or Bethel or Gateway and saw that those churches had, you know, like beams and spot, you know, fog machines and, you know, and, and it was just a, a glamorous presentation. And so the thinking is, well, if they do that at that big church, we should do that here. And so it's that small little ball. That's sort of how we are when we as a church try to outcompete the world when it comes to entertainment. It always looks a little foolish at some level. And so it's not supposed to be that way because no lighting program or no amount of different props, skills will ever turn a single person to trust in Jesus Christ. Frankly, bringing people to church to attend kids' camp or to be in a youth group, perhaps that's the idea is I want to bring my church to uh, my kids to a really great children's ministry program or a great youth ministry. And the thinking is if I do that, they're going to be a Christian. That's just hogwash. It just won't happen. It doesn't matter how much effort we put into it, how great it is, that program and it is a program, will never turn a single one of those kids to believe in Jesus Christ, no matter how much glitz and glamour. Those are attractional programs. And if you have the most excellent programs, but the very people who are running those programs, no matter how skillfully, no matter, even if they work for Pixar or if they work for Disney, no matter how skilled they are, if they themselves are not transformed by the gospel, if they themselves are not loving Christ more than their own children, more than the children that they are ministering over, then they're only going to produce churchgoers, attractional people. They will produce perhaps nice kids, moral kids, but not necessarily saved. No, not necessarily. Not at all saved kids. We need attracted people, not attractive, attracted. You need to be attracted to Christ. He has to be, as a, one song says, your magnificent obsession. 
He has to be utmost to your life. When you look at this woman, there is no program that saves her. It's just the person and work of Christ. That's it. But that attracted person, certainly not an attractive person, quite the opposite. She's not attractive, not in her morality, but in her attractedness, she goes and tells others and everyone says, I need to find out more about this Jesus. Attracted people who are saved and transformed become like Christ, humble, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, broken, prayerful, serving, giving, not because those things are a means are the end, but it, they're a means, an outflow, a fruit. Because they know that they are sinners saved by grace, therefore they go and use their talents and gifts. What we need are not people who are talented and gifted, because again, those people don't do anything for Christ. What we need are people who are broken sinners, who are saved who are joyously saved. And from their salvation flows a heart to say, I'm gonna use my talents and gifts to create this little structure. And if that can be used in some way to show people that I love Jesus. See, it's not the structure loves Jesus, it can't. But it's I love Christ. When you are serving this week, and I know many of you are, and you're serving those kids, don't just simply play games. Show them yourself. If you love Jesus, show them you love Jesus. Show them that you are, you're a broken sinner, that you need Christ. If you're going to Villafranca, students, we're not just putting on a camp. Camps don't do anything. But people who are saved, who are struck by the Savior, and when they do things, and someone says, why are you doing this? You say, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I've been saved. That's why I'm doing this. Then God uses by his grace that as a means and it's important. Second is that the second word is worshipful, not missional. When Jack Miller, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary, he popped taught practical theology, planted a number of churches in the Philadelphia area. He uh, began, when he began um, World Harvest Mission, he did it with the purpose of helping missionaries grow in Christ. And here's the reason why. When he was a seminary professor, as he's teaching pastors to become pastors, or students become pastors, he, start, he got burnt out he sort of grew tired and weary. And so he resigned from being a professor at the seminary and from planting churches. He resigned from his church. And he took a year away just to study Galatians and Romans. And as he did, he reflected on what he felt like was missing from his life, which is, yes, he was saved. Yes, he believed in the gospel. But what he didn't see is the connectedness between the gospel and its implication in how you live your life. How burdensome being a Christian was when you forget what Christ has done for you. And so he created 
this discipleship curriculum called Sonship, and it was used to especially, specifically work with missionaries. Missionaries who had gone overseas came back and were disillusioned. Oftentimes they were angry. They were angry at God, angry at the church, angry at others because either they were unfruitful, they didn't see much fruit in their, in their ministry, or perhaps they grew tired or they just didn't realize, well, this is what missions is globally. And it was so often language learning and taking care of details and that wasn't what they signed up for. So they came back embittered. And so he created this program to say, you know what, you forgot why you went in the first place. It was never about the mission, it's always about Christ. And when he created this program called Sonship, a lot of other people started hearing about it, non-missionaries saying, actually, I feel the same way. Like, I don't know how to live my life. It's hard, it's, it, at work, it's difficult. I have forgotten when, so he started teaching that to other people. That's where that comes from. But that's the challenge is that there are these people who are zealous, who when they're saved, they say, I wanna do something for Jesus. So they go, I wanna be a missionary. So they go overseas, but things don't go exactly in accordance with plan and they become angry at God. God, why did I, I sacrificed all this for you. Why don't, why are you doing this to me? There is no greater mission strategy than the person transformed by the gospel. And when we are focused more on the mission, we do become embittered. Instead, it is the outflow of knowing who Christ is, knowing what he has done for me, that the mission naturally flows outward. We want to tell people about Jesus. The two, being born again and then going out, they literally go hand in hand. And so Jack Miller's wife, Rosemary Miller, he, she said this about what Jack noted. She said, in Jack's mind, you never give the gospel without discipling somebody with it. And without sending them out, in his mind, there was no disconnect. Discipleship in the gospel, meaning if you're, if you're saying, I wanna follow Jesus, I'm saved, I wanna follow Jesus, part of that, the, the natural outflow of following Jesus goes hand in hand with telling others about Jesus. And if you're not telling others about Jesus, then the question is, do you remember what Christ has done for you, which is why you go back to the gospel again. You learn it, you grow in it, and then as that cultivates in your heart and it stirs your heart, then you say, I want to go back out. This is what happens in John 4. This woman, there's no disconnect between someone who is living completely apart from God, encounters Christ, transformed by what he is and who he is and what he's done, and then goes out and tells others about Jesus. In John 4, we see that it's the worship in spirit and truth of Christ, that as that's being cultivated and understood, that automatically flows out to mission. Therefore, you don't have to be missions-minded or missional. We simply have to believe that the gospel is true. And therefore, because it's good news, we have to tell others about it. If you were told that you have a tumor in your body and there's gonna be a biopsy. And so therefore, you go into the doctor, they take the biopsy, 
then they say, we'll call you back and let you know the results. So you tell everyone you know, please pray for me. This is what's happening. The hope is that the tumor is not malignant, it's benign. So you get a phone call and the doctor says, congratulations, good news, the tumor is benign. I don't think it takes a lot of effort for you to say to all those people, the tumor is benign. You're not thinking, I wanna hide this fact from people because I'm scared, I'm ashamed of it. See, good news, if it's really good to you, it's something you have to say. You don't have to learn how to say it. You don't have to have a strategy about it. You don't have to plan for it. You don't have to figure out what's the right timing, what's the best timing. It just naturally occurs. You know, good news happens if you are engaged. You don't have to fight to tell people about the fact that you're engaged. You go on social media and you go on Instagram and say, I'm engaged, and you show a picture of the engagement, show the ring. If you are named the MVP of a tournament, you can't help but smile. If your child is the valedictorian of his class, you know, I have four valedictorians because we homeschooled our kids. (laughs) I have four valedictorians. I want to tell you, they are valedictorians of their class. Yeah, yeah, give them a big congratulations later. Not now, later for being a valedictorian of one. And um, doesn't matter the grade, valedictorian. But if you, are, if you have a child and they're valedictorian of their class, you don't have to fight to, or to try to figure out a strategy. Am I gonna, how do I say this? You, and actually, the hard part is not saying something because you really want to say but you want to be humble about it. You want to say, well, you know, my child gave this speech. What speech? You mean the valedictorian speech? Mm, yeah, that speech. You know, that, that's not how, you wanna tell everyone, you can't help it. Definitely you'll tell your parents, right? You'll tell those around you. That's how good news operates. So if you're saved and it's good news, you will tell others. And if you don't tell others, maybe the question is, is it good news for you? That's what it has to go back to because that's how it's supposed to work. That's how all good news works. If it's worshipful, you don't have to be missional. You don't have to be missions-minded. It just flows out of you. Third is supernatural, not professional. One of the most compelling aspects of this woman's story is her personal story. We are told in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then when they encounter Jesus themselves, they no longer have to go off the woman's testimony. We see this in verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Without a doubt, what led them to see Christ was not her abilities. (laughs) You know what I mean? It had nothing to do with her abilities. She didn't come up with a, a grand strategy as to how to talk about Jesus. She just simply believed, and therefore she told others. This woman was changed, and they saw that she was changed, even in a moment, with very little information. This doesn't negate means. So God, 
he can, he does use education, he does use training, he does use planning, he does use organization. Uh, even though I use the phrase not professional, I'm not saying that God discounts or avoids using trained people for discipleship or books or different means. But I do believe there is a strong belief that gospel advancement and proclamation, that is evangelism and missions, that if we think of it as best left to the professionals, we've missed out on what true evangelism and mission looks like. Evangelism and missions is not about the radical and elite Christian, the mature ones, the zealous ones, the gifted ones, the chosen ones, the ones called to go. There's a certain people that are called to go and certain people who are not, they're supposed to stay. If we want to see this, all we need to do is look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, verse 4. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. If you were, uh, had the task of trying to grow the church, would you ever use persecution as the means to, to grow the church? It's so opposite of how we think. See, we think safety grows the church, comfort, really beautiful designs. But here, the Holy Spirit uses suffering to grow the church. Now, look at how it's described. Luke describes it this way. The church is scattered, right? So it spreads, and this is how God grows and advances the gospel. But look at who was not scattered, the apostles. Did you notice that? The apostles were not scattered. If it were me and I was designing a church growth gospel advancement plan, what I would do is take the apostles, all 12 of them, and say, all right, Thomas, you go to Lycia. Peter, you go to Greece. Uh, Paul, you should go to Rome. And I would strategically place them, so if you imagine risk that board and put them each on their own country. And I try to figure that out and say, all right, you're the head of this group, you're the head of this group, and we plan it all together, right? But look at what the Holy Spirit does. He leaves all the apostles together in Jerusalem at this point while he scatters everybody else, all the normal people the non-apostles. He scatters them abroad. And then look at verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Why did God do that? Because he doesn't need apostles. Yes, he uses apostles, clearly. But what he uses to advance the gospel of Christ is me and you. And the way he does it is when you are transformed and changed, you just simply go and tell others about Jesus. There's no plan, no strategy. Sometimes you say dumb things in the process. Sometimes the strategy is terrible. Sometimes you completely fail. But that's what God does. He uses ordinary means to advance his kingdom. And therefore, no one can boast. It's not about a person. It's not about a skill set. It's not about some strategy or plan that saves people. It is God and God alone. In Nick, in Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God, 
he describes his visit to the underground church in China. And this is what he says, these leaders had been born into an environment of oppression. They had lived their lives under that oppression. Even so, these leaders and their colleagues outside in the farmyard had witnessed the greatest spiritual awakening that the world had ever known. I think that's actually really important because that's so true is that so much of the advancement of the church in China is in farmyards, the rural communities. And they had planned, played a part in it. God was using these faithful and courageous followers of Jesus and countless more just like them to spread the good news of the gospel further, faster, and to more people than had ever happened before in human history. The church of the growth during 50 years of communist rule in China was even greater than the growth experience in the church over the first few centuries after Christ. And if you stop and think about that, so Mao tries to completely wipe out the church and subsequent years in China, and yet there is faster and greater growth in the gospel out of ordinary people who are so often uneducated, people who are farmers and just simple people, and yet this gospel is going to the most populous nation in the world, spreading to all sorts and sectors from those areas heading into Shanghai and Beijing and other cosmopolitan areas. That's not how we would do it, but that's how God does it. Because God doesn't need really smart people, really wealthy people. God needs a transformed people. He doesn't need it, he uses a transformed people. So there's no way anyone would ever think of the advancement of the gospel through suffering and persecution. We think the opposite. Get an advanced degree in theology. Make sure that when you have a church planning team, raise up a million dollars first. Have a staff of 30 people. First start with 500 people to plant the church, and then it's gonna be an awesome church. And then make sure you have a disco ball right above the head, and everything will be okay. We look at this story in the Gospel of John and in the Samaritan woman, and it is so simple that it is complex. It is the simple transformation of one woman who is morally unrighteous to go and do, do the complex work of going and tell others about Jesus, and through that, a whole village who had never heard about Christ came to believe in him. In these next few weeks, we are literally going across the street and inviting people to come and see at kids camp and around the world in Villafranca in, in literally two weeks time. Some of you have worked really hard, prepared hard to make these two camps the best ever. But I want you to know this, neither of these camps will save a single soul. They won't, they, they can't. It doesn't matter how much effort, but what we can do is we can glorify ourselves in it, or we can make Wellspring really awesome. But making Wellspring awesome and Jesus not means that we should close down this church. We shouldn't exist. It is a, a tragedy, a travesty, if we work hard to make ourselves and even this church something special. It is not about this church, and it is not about Villafranca that church, it is about Christ. So let us not put our efforts into drawing people to look and experience things. Let us put our work and effort into 
seeing and meeting Jesus, who he is and what he has done to me, to me. That's what our kids need to see. I am saved. But that means that you're repentant and you're broken. You know, our kids do not need to see us as strong and powerful and gifted. They need to see us as, I need a savior. Here are the ways that I fail. I grow angry at you. I lose my temper. I am impatient. But Christ in me, the hope of glory, he rescued me. He loved me and gave himself for me. It is in our repentance, just like this woman at the well, that transformation happens. It's that repentance and that brokenness and that need for Christ that the world needs to see. And when we are working together, the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. These people who, when we love one another, you're loving, just like yourself, a broken, messed up, sinful, needy people who need Jesus. And when we love each other in light of that, that's when the glories of Christ shine forth. We, uh, I, I want to add this, is that this concept of you know, knowing and recognizing so much that it is the work of the Lord. This is also the reason why we decide very intentionally to humble ourselves, even in different contexts. To those who are here serving this week, to those who are going to Villafranca, you will be tired. You will be worn. Some of these kids are going to be a real pain. They're going to not be the most loving. I guarantee you, there's good. look for that one child who is really hard to love. And there are, in Villafranca, we're going to go to a place where perhaps you might think, well, Spain is a really great country. I'd love to visit there. It is beautiful. It is great. But there are some challenges, and here's the challenge. Their meal times are 8 a.m., 2.30 p.m., and 9 to 10 p.m., dinner. And you might think, well, does that really matter? So I looked, I looked at a picture, because someone said, is it really 9 p.m.? Come on, it's probably late, like latest 8, 7. So I, showed, I looked up a picture of our past trip and us eating dinner, and it showed, because I looked at the informational tag on it shows the time it was taken 10:42, and we were just about to start dinner 10:42 p.m that means that in a camp where we're working non-stop if we're eating dinner at 11 p.m that you have <laughs> you go to sleep around one and then we wake up at 8 a.m seven we're not 8 a.m we start at 8 a.m six whatever 6 30 it's tiring and most of the mentors are over 50, except for the college students. Most of them are 50, and some are probably thinking, well, my schedule here is like, I sleep at 9.30. There's no way I could do this. You know, I don't eat at 12, I mean, at 2.30 lunch and 10 p.m. I can't do that. My digestive system doesn't work that way. I just think of, why are we doing this? What is our purpose? If our purpose is to be comfortable, to be attractional, to put up a nice camp and say, everything's good, well, that's not gonna in any way show people the love of Christ. 
The Lord never does anything where he just simply takes our comforts and through that, somehow we grow magically. It's usually through suffering, trial, difficulty. And it's in those difficulties, those hardships, those challenges of life. And not that we overcome it by willpower and strength, but we actually acknowledge, I am weak. This is hard. I am tired. That kid is really bothering me. But then you run to the Savior and say, but Jesus, I was that kid. I am. I am weak. I am miserable. I am a sinner. I am broken. And I need you. And that's why you gave your life for me. You loved me and gave your life for me. And from that overflow, then you go back to that kid and say, I'm going to still love you. I'm going to still care for you. I'm tired. I'm, I'm broken. I'm worn. I'm still going to do this. And from that, we show in some way the love of Jesus Christ. This has to be not just this two weeks, our whole life. But when we do this, you will be shocked. People will see that you love Christ. At the very least, they might not believe, but they will see, wow, you really love this Jesus, don't you? And that's what we are showing, that we love Christ and we need him. Lastly is believing, not participating. Verses 40, 42. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The fruit that is promised is many more believed. Many more believed. When you look at what took place you have to realize this woman literally does nothing to cause people to believe in Jesus. And Jesus, earlier on, we saw that he said, I have made the harvest. Look, the harvest is white. It's ready for the picking. It's ready. See, Jesus makes the harvest ready, not us. So that frees us from results. This is the problem with us. We don't get results we get disappointed. So maybe after kids camp, we think, and that's why we don't do altar calls at kids camp. I don't know if you ever realize that. Some churches do, we don't. Because we're not we're looking for that immediate result of saying, oh, I raised my hand, so therefore, anyone could raise their hand. But we just trust the Lord with the results. But what we really believe is that we know that we don't have to worry about the results. We don't have to worry about who's saved and who's not. We just simply are faithful. We trust him. He is our hope. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our head. And because of that, I don't have to feel bad when things fail, when the words don't come out right, and it's, I'm not articulate. I don't say the right thing. Well, even if you said the right thing, it doesn't save that person. Jesus will do the saving. The Holy Spirit will do the work of taking the heart of stone and making a heart of flesh. That frees me and that frees you to say, let me just freely be joyous and serve and trust that God in the end will take care of everything. I shared this a while ago. Um, Sue and I went on a short-term mission to Micronesia. It's an island south of the Philippines. And when we went there, we were really startled to find that Micronesia, at that time at least, amongst men had the second highest suicide rate 
per capita. And you have to understand, Micronesia, when we went, it was crystal blue water. It was paradise. Spear fishing. The, it was, you could fish Nemo. I mean, Dory was there. I mean, really. I ate Dory. And um, it, it was, there was basketball courts. The men, they had no work. They just slept. They played basketball when they wanted to. They would swim. They would lay on the beach. And they were killing themselves. The second highest suicide rate in the world per capita. The women, they had families. They were productive. They took care of their children. The men literally did nothing. So they, they drank, they played, and they took drugs. They literally, as Neil Postman once wrote in the book, Amusing Yourselves to Death, ourselves to death, they literally amuse themselves to death. We need mission if we are a believer of Christ. Otherwise, we will amuse ourselves to death spiritually. We need to share the gospel because our instinct is to simply think, oh, I can just relax. I don't have to do anything. But as you do that, you are literally shriveling up and dying. Your soul is just wasting away. It is no different than those men in Micronesia. It is the same. I appreciate what Tim Keller says about this idea. He says this, a lot of us are dying because of a lack of mission. For many of you, your biggest mistake in life is to make enough money so you can just pay next month's rent and keep your lifestyle where you want it to be. As a result, I believe many of our souls are shriveling up because they were built for something much more noble and much more heroic than that. The more we live for ourselves, the lonelier and emptier we will be. I know it's hard to believe for some of you, but if I were to say, play video games all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there should be hopefully a time where you feel disgusting. Maybe that's after one day, I don't know. Somewhere along the way, that's like, this feels gross. That's how it's supposed to be with everything. Eventually, that which gives us fun and pleasure and joy and comfort will wear us down. It will destroy us. Like this woman at the well, when she believed, she told others. And that fostered in her an even greater desire to know Christ. This coming summer, you received an email, talked about how there's going to be a summer Sunday night series. And I'll be giving a couple of talks on marriage and parenting and a few talks. And Michael's going to give some on sharing the gospel, gospel advancement. I really hope you come and join us for that. One of the hopes is that we'll go out afterwards. You don't have to do this, but we want to do this. Um, Michael told me beforehand, sit there, because in the first service I said, we're going to go out and do this. He said, I'll tell people that's optional. And I was like, ah, I don't want to tell them they're optional. I want to say you got to do it, because sometimes getting the door slammed in your face, it, it's a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it actually helps us to realize we need Christ. But it's so non-productive. That is, you shouldn't, that's so non-strategic to go door to door anymore. But I feel like that's exactly what we need to do. We need to tell others. When you know Jesus and you love him, you will tell others. You won't be forced to. You won't be guilted into do it. 
You will instead be like Jeremiah. And this is what he says. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hope you have that. But you don't get this until you encounter the living Christ. But if you encounter him, and you experience the joy that it gives you, I surely tell you that you will have this fire that you'll say, I have, I, I have to tell others about him. We sang that song, All Sufficient Merit. Again, I just imagine this woman singing that song. We're gonna close with this song after communion. I really hope you imagine her singing this song. And you imagine yourself. This is who you are. This is your testimony. This is your story. Let's pray together. Jesus, you loved us and gave yourself for us. We are righteous, not on our own. We've been purchased. And every time we think that in some way, what we do, what we say, how we think, that that in and of itself changes a person, we know that surely it doesn't because it's hard to do that. It's burdensome, it's despairing. We get accused by the, the accuser of the brothers, Satan himself, who says, you're not good. You fail, you're miserable. You don't know enough. But I pray, O oh Lord, that we would look to you. We would see, we would come and see the living Christ who loved us, who resurrected, died, rose again so that we might have life forever in you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I know that if we get that truly in our hearts, it will help us to love these children this week. For those going to Villafranca, it will help us to love those children, to serve when it is hard. And it will help us to cross the street and tell our neighbor, cross the cubicle and tell our coworker even go to the ends of the earth. We just thank you so much for the story of this woman. She teaches us so much about you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.